Good morning. If you have a Bible, I hope you do. You can open to John 18. We'll be in verses 1 through 27. And as Greg said, today marks the first Sunday of Advent, a season on the church calendar for waiting and remembering, remembering Jesus' first coming and looking forward with longing and eager expectation and hope that just as God has kept every other promise throughout redemptive history up to this point, he will keep all of his promises for us, and Jesus is coming again. So we started this sermon series through the Gospel of John on the Sunday before Christmas last year. Rather than taking a break from John this Advent, we're going to keep plugging along and finish the gospel. And that means we're going to spend Advent in John 18 through 21, where John recounts his eyewitness testimony of Jesus' arrest and trial and crucifixion and burial and resurrection and his appearances. And we realize that Holy Week From Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Easter, that's the usual time when the church gives special attention to the events recorded in John 18 through 21. And Advent has to do with angels and shepherds and magi from the East, right? So if it seems strange at all to spend Advent here at Holy Week, here's how we're thinking about it. Think about it in terms of perspective or vantage point. As as finite beings... What we see is always affected by where we stand. Where we're standing always affects what we see, our vantage point. So think about if you've gone on the sculpture walk downtown Sioux Falls. Sculptures are three-dimensional, and you have to walk all the way around the sculpture to take the whole thing in and see it from different angles and different perspectives. And if you think of the timeline of Jesus' life as this thing out in front of you stretching from side to side with his birth and his death you might not see immediately the connections between his birth and his death because they look like different ends of the spectrum. But if you turn it this way so that you're standing at the end of it looking down it so that his birth and his death line up, you see glorious things. During Advent, we celebrate the fact that God took on full humanity. But he took on flesh not to remain a a cute, chubby baby, but to suffer in human flesh, to die in human flesh, to rise from the dead in human flesh, and ultimately to redeem your human flesh. That's why he took on flesh. And that's what's happening in John 18 through 21. So it seems fitting to be here in the last moments of Jesus' life during Advent, so that we're looking at both events at the same time, with Christmas looming in the forefront of our minds, looking at his final cry and final breath. So let's give our attention to John 18, verses 1 through 27. This is God's word. We have a God who speaks to us. When Jesus had spoken these words... He went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus 
knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Let's pray. Father, we are attentive to you this morning. Our ears inclined, our hearts open to receive. We want you to feed us. We want you to fill us. We want you to address us. We want to hear you. Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we know that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we pray, Father, that through your word, inspired by your spirit, your word which is living and active, true and powerful, 
We pray that you would cause our hearts to trust Jesus, produce faith in us in response to the proclamation of your word. May Jesus have the first and the highest and the best place in our minds, and our hearts, our affection. Speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two goals this morning. One is to call you to abandon all self-reliance, self-righteousness, any hope at all of self-atonement. And the other is to convince you to rely fully and exclusively on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. And really, that's just one goal with two parts, one coin with two sides. Despairing of any power, any effort to save yourself, and resting in Jesus' power to save you. That's turning and trusting, repenting and believing. I'm convinced that's what the Spirit of God means to communicate through John 18. The story of God's glory, the story of redemptive history is a tale of two gardens, two Adams. In Eden, the first Adam relied on himself and he rebelled against God. And through that one man's disobedience, sin and death came into the world and spread to all humans, as Paul says in Romans 5. Because of Adam, sin and sorrows grow and thorns infest the ground. But in Gethsemane, the last Adam fully relied on the Father, and he overcame the serpent. He came to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. In Eden, Adam walked with God until he rebelled against God. In Gethsemane, sons of Adam walked with God again, and again broke faith with him. Think about that. In this garden... Sons of Adam betrayed the Son of God, blamed all their problems on him, arrested him, bound him, took steps to kill him. But this time things would be different because God did not merely walk with man in the garden. He walked as man in the garden. Paul says in Romans 5, 17, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much More, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So so the contrast between Adam and Jesus, between Eden and Gethsemane is striking. And it should cause you to lose any hope of contributing anything at all to your own salvation and instead cause you to place all your confidence in Jesus Christ. Christ. And so that's how I want to proceed, just contrasting Adam and Jesus, Eden and Gethsemane. In Adam, all die. And we see that portrayed in the characters in this narrative, in Judas, in the Jewish religious leaders, in Peter. In Judas, we see that idols cannot save you. They are absolutely powerless and futile. Five times in John, the words Judas and betray appear next to each other. And two of those are right here, back to back in John 18, verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. And then in verse 5, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. I I find that funny. I mean, John is narrating 
the events of Judas' betrayal of Jesus, and the facts are just plain and obvious that that's what's going on. Judas is betraying Jesus. The facts speak for themselves, and yet, just to be clear so that nobody misses it, John also throws in there unambiguously and twice, Judas is the betrayer. As if you couldn't tell from the events happening in the story, Judas betrayed Jesus, and signs of his disloyalty and discontentment appeared back in John chapter 12. Remember how Judas had voiced his disapproval when Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with that expensive ointment? John 12, 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? See, is he concerned about the poor? No, John pulls back the veil and sheds light on the idol of Judas's heart, verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So at some point, it dawned on Judas that he could turn a profit on his proximity to Jesus. He realized, this could be worth something. I have access to him, and there could be a payout. And so for 30 pieces of silver, which is worth roughly half a year's wage. So think about what you make in six months. I mean, it's not a small amount of money. Not a huge amount, but it's not small. For about half a year's wage, he made a deal to hand Jesus over. It was all about what was in it for him. Judas loved money more than he loved Jesus. And that's a sober warning. What was he trusting in? What was he desiring? And what did he do out of that? We realize that all of our sin comes from the root sin of idolatry. Martin Luther said, you don't break any other of the Ten Commandments until you've broken the first two. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any images, anything. You don't break any other commandment until you've broken those two first. That's the root of Judas' Judas's problem. He thought he knew better than Jesus, just like Adam thought he knew better than God. Just like Adam, Judas thought something else was better than God. And that's the idolatry that infects every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve down to today. So like Paul, we cry out, wretched men and women that we are, who will deliver us from this body of death? That's Judas. Then there's the, the religious leaders in the garden here. And, and I think they make it clear, man-made religion can't help us, can't save you. Judas wasn't working alone. The band of soldiers that he brought, the officers that he brought, he got them from the chief priests and the Pharisees. He was operating on their authority. And, and they're the ones who twisted the judicial system to condemn Jesus. It was the high priest and his father-in-law, who was a former high priest, over and over again in John's gospel, John exposes the religious leaders as self-righteous hypocrites. Remember, they, they were okay with circumcising an eight-day-old baby boy on the Sabbath, but they couldn't stand the fact that Jesus would heal a man's whole body on the Sabbath. Their religion was not a way to please God and enjoy God. It was a way to look good and impress one another, John chapter 12. If they actually loved God, 
If they actually paid any attention to his word and understood it at all, they would have loved Jesus and trusted him. That's what Jesus told them in chapter 5 and chapter 7 and chapter 8. And instead, think about the irony of this. They twisted God's word. that They used the very words of God to condemn the Son of God. To do the very thing that was contrary to the law, Jesus said, contrary to the law, you seek to kill me. You're the lawbreakers. So in John 8, Jesus pointed out to them the uncanny family resemblance. You look an awful lot like your murderous, lying father, the devil. That's who you actually belong to. For all of your outward religion, all of your show, all of your studying of the law, you look like your father, the devil. That's crazy. Man-made Religion shows its dark and ugly face in the garden. And so again, like Paul, we can cry out, wretched men and women that we are, who will save us from this body of death? And then there's Peter. All of his bravado and boldness And for all of that, he warns us, zeal, zeal coming from your own flesh, zeal cannot save you. I mean, he epitomizes human zeal. He said back in chapter 13, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I mean, he was ready to go to the death for Jesus. All zeal, no understanding. He had been with Jesus All these years, listening to Jesus, teaching Jesus, had clearly said he was going to suffer and die. He didn't get it. He didn't want it. Remember the time Jesus rebuked him and said, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God in mind. Because Peter said, may it never be. I don't want you to die. And in his self-reliance, he was going to rescue Jesus. He was going to save Jesus. He has it entirely backwards, John 18, 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. I mean, again, the irony is just so thick in John's gospel. Peter has no idea that his self-assured confidence is actually a way of rejecting God's provision, God's salvation. But that's what becomes clear when he goes from defending Jesus to denying Jesus. How does that happen? How do you go from such intense courage, ready to fight, take up arms, and protect Jesus to the death, to a few scenes later, Peter is afraid to even admit to a slave girl at the door. She's a gatekeeper. She's a slave. And he's embarrassed to admit to her that he has any association with Jesus. How do you account for that? I think the explanation is, all of his confidence that showed up in the garden was totally misplaced. And when that was exposed, it was gone. All of his confidence, he he had a certain expectation of the kind of Messiah he wanted, no idea the kind of Messiah that he actually needed. He wanted a Messiah who would save him from the Romans. He needed a Messiah who would save him from his own sin. He wanted a Messiah who would improve his circumstances in life. He needed a Messiah who would give him new spiritual life. And when it became clear to him Jesus wasn't taking up arms and fighting. All of his hope was gone. All of his courage was gone. I mean, his assumptions emboldened him at first, 
But when it became clear Jesus had a different agenda, he gave in. And, and that's how fickle and fleeting all of our attempts to stir up zeal on our own. That's how, how fleeting it is. Wretched men and women that we are, who will deliver us from this body of death? All of these characters, Judas, the Jewish leaders, Peter, they, they just represent the diverse ways that we as humans can reject God, just like Adam in the garden. We reject God anytime we rely on ourselves, and there are all kinds of ways to do it, but at the root, it's, it's the same. It, you ever had that thought? Man, if, if I was in Eden, I would not have done what Adam and Eve did. If I was one of the disciples, I would not have been so dense as them. And yet, isn't that the point? This is the human condition. So what it means to be human. They did what every one of us would have done. And so any notion that we're all just innocently, you know, seeking our way to God, trying to find our way to please Him, to know Him, is just gone in Gethsemane. Humans are not looking for God. Instead, we see humanity's pathetic inability to save itself. And it's a good thing for us to despair of any effort to stir up enough zeal to be enough, to jump through enough religious hoops to be good enough. It's a good thing for us to lose any confidence in ourselves so that we can turn and see where the hope is actually located. And there's hope in this text. The aim of this text is not just to convince you to abandon self-reliance, it's to convince you to rely fully on Jesus. In Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. Unlike Adam, Jesus can save a new human race because he alone suffered. He suffered alone as an innocent and willing substitute for you. I want to take those observations in turn. Jesus can save you because he suffered alone. What a great Savior he is. Do you notice how John cuts back and forth between Peter's denial and Jesus on trial? He moves from Jesus in front of Annas, verses 12 through 14, back to Peter at the fire with the slaves in verses 15 through 18, back to Jesus with the high priest, verses 19 through 24, back to Peter, verses 25 through 27. Why does he cut back and forth like that? Here's what I think is happening. When the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, Jesus gave a simple defense. He said, I haven't spoken in secret. I spoke openly to the world. So why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me. John cuts back to Peter. What did he deny three times? That he had any association with Jesus at all. I mean, the, the loneliness of Jesus in this moment should strike us with some force. Peter, the one who was willing to lay down his life, took up arms and chopped off somebody's ear, suddenly said, I don't even know the guy. And Jesus' defense was, why don't you just ask others what I said? I mean, this would be like the star witness, right? And he is nowhere to be found. Jesus' defense crumbles. He has no character witnesses willing to testify on his behalf, not because of his lack of character, but because of their lack of courage. And yet, this is good news for you. 
When Jesus suffered alone, he showed, he proves, there's nothing you can do to contribute. You don't bring something to help him when he saves you. He doesn't help you and save you with your assistance. He just does it all alone. I mean, what would you do? Pull out your dagger like Peter and come to Jesus' rescue? He doesn't need rescuing. He does all the saving. He doesn't need any help. I think Jesus' suffering alone means even more for us. He came to redeem Adam's race from sin. All sin falls short of the glory of God. That's because all sin treats the glory of God as worthless, treats it with contempt. That's the root of all of our sin. We treat God's glory with contempt. We desire anything and everything other than God. We treat His glory as worthless when we treat anything as worth more. And so the only way for Jesus to atone for your sin was for him to do it in a way that magnified the glory of God, upheld the worth of God's glory. If he doesn't uphold the all-sufficiency of the glory of God, then God's glory is not vindicated, and there's no pardon for sinners. And so when he suffers alone, that's exactly what he does. He proves the glory of God is enough for humans. The glory of God is enough for human beings because here's a human, descendant of Adam, standing there alone, trusting his father. Remember what Jesus said at the end of chapter 16, verse 32? Behold, the hour is coming. He told his disciples this was going to happen. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and you will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. So in his abandonment, he is declaring the Father's enough. The Father is enough. And if the glory of God is enough for Jesus in that agony, then you can be assured that the glory of God is enough for you in any agony. And you can be confident that your sins are forgiven because he suffered in such a way that he held up the glory of the Father. So he can save you because he suffered alone. He can save you because he suffered innocently. The corruption of the religious leaders and the innocence of Jesus are apparent in the total lack of due process according to the Mosaic law. For one, do you catch the trial took place at night? One commentator says, night proceedings in normal cases were doubtless viewed as illegal. Easy detail to miss. Where the case was exceptional and the pressure of time extraordinary, doubtless legal loopholes could be found. So they're finding legal loopholes to hold this trial at night. Then there's the total lack of witnesses, which Jesus points out. And he says in verses 20 and 21, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Again, commentator D.A. Carson says, proper procedure under the Mosaic law was to interrogate the witnesses not the defendant. Indeed, witnesses for the defendant were heard before witnesses against him. So that was the procedure. Witnesses are called. Witnesses 
for the defendant than witnesses against him. There are no witnesses here. They just interrogate Jesus, which is always part of corruption, right? If you just start the accusations and start the investigation, maybe you can even find something in the process because you have nothing on him anyway. No witnesses are called. So Jesus is pointing out the injustice of the trial. He calls out the injustice in verse 23 when one of the officers struck him and he says, if I, what I said was wrong, testify about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? And John reminds us in verse 14, this was all just a matter of expediency. Remember Caiaphas, what he had said earlier, it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. This would just be more convenient for us if we could just get rid of him and not have any other problems. And yet, it had to be unjust. How else could an innocent, sinless man die for sins he didn't commit? It had to be this way. Only an innocent, sinless substitute could atone for the sins of Adam's race. Because he's sinless, because he's innocent, there's hope for you and me. Otherwise, he could not be the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus can save you, thirdly, because he suffered willingly. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus knew everything that was about to happen to him in the coming hours. He knew he'd be arrested. He knew the false accusations that would come. He knew that he would be unjustly condemned, that he would be abandoned, that he would be beaten and mocked and spit upon and killed. He knew, and yet he proceeded anyway. Just marvel for a moment at the display of glory in that. It's one thing to endure pain. It's another thing to go through pain when you know it's coming. Think about the way we flinch just like pulling a Band-Aid off. You just know it's coming, so there's this anticipation of pain that kind of heightens the pain itself. Jesus knows what's coming, and he proceeds with confidence. The way John retells the events of that night, he just leaves no room for doubt that Jesus is in complete control, even in this moment that could look like total lack of control, total weakness. He told us back in chapter 7 and chapter 8, when they tried to arrest him, they didn't succeed because why? His hour had not yet come. And now that his hour has come, in case it looks at all like he's being arrested and taken against his will, John makes it clear. Just, just think about it. Where is Jesus hanging out? In a familiar garden that Judas knew about. That, that's like living on the Lamb 101. If you're trying to not get caught... Don't go to your usual hangouts with your usual associates. That's the first place the authorities are going to look. Where does he normally go? Judas knew this place. He led them straight there. John draws our attention to that fact in verse 2. Jesus is not looking to escape. He went there. He knew what was coming. And he came forward and he offered himself in verse 4. And when he comes forward, he does so with a demonstration of power that makes it clear he could have walked right out of there if he wanted to, even though there were armed Roman soldiers guarding his escape from the garden. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, it's not entirely clear exactly what happened. Why did they fall to the ground? We know that both Old and New Testament, when God appears to people, 
There's this involuntary reaction of falling on the ground, typically in worship. Now, they don't fall down in worship. They're not worshiping. They get back up and they proceed to arrest him anyway. But what is clear is that Jesus has power and remains in total control. He will allow himself to be arrested when he pleases. I mean, with three simple words, two in the Greek, he knocks down this whole band of armed soldiers. He gave himself up. It was his will to do the Father's will. He says to Peter in verse 11, after Peter chops off Malchus's ear, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And in the Old Testament, the cup, the cup is a cup of judgment on the wicked. Listen to Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. It's a cup of judgment. In Isaiah 51, 22, it's a cup of staggering and a bowl of wrath. In Jeremiah 49, it's a cup of punishment. It's a familiar concept, picture in the Old Testament. That's the cup that Jesus willingly drinks. He offered himself up of his own accord. He laid down his life willingly, and that's why he can save you, because he accomplished the work his father gave him to do. Think about what that means for you today as you trust in Jesus. Of his own will, he offered himself up. In Adam, all die. In Adam, the human will is bound to sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is why Christmas matters so much. The incarnation matters because Jesus didn't just take on human flesh and blood, the outward appearance of a human, while not taking on a human mind, a human will, human emotions. He took on full humanity, all of it. He had a human will, and with that will, he submitted himself to the Father. He went to the cross submitting, yielding his human will to the Father, which gives you hope because that means your human will, enslaved to sin, can actually be redeemed from that slavery to sin through Jesus, who is the last Adam and the head of a new race. Do you get that? What a big deal that is? His will was yielded to the Father. His mind, he thought the thoughts of the Father, which means there's hope for your mind. Your mind can be renewed in Christ, like Ephesians 4 says. Unlike Adam, he willed to trust and obey the Father to the uttermost. Finally, Jesus can save you because he suffered as your substitute. He suffered alone. He suffered of his own will, but he didn't suffer for himself. He suffered for you. When he asked the officers, the soldiers, whom do you seek? He wasn't asking out of ignorance. He knew who they were there for. He was running interference. Look what he says in verses 8 and 9. I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men Go, and John comments, this was to fulfill the words he had spoken. Those words were right back in John 17 in that high priestly prayer. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. He made sure that his life was given 
and his disciples were spared. And, and that is a picture. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He kept them in the Father's name. He guarded them so that none was lost. No one can snatch his sheep out of his hand. And what we see here in the garden is that the way he keeps, the way he guards, the way he holds and protects so that no one can snatch you out of the Father's hand, the way he does that is by taking your place. There's a whole lot more than just the, the disciples' immediate physical safety, walking out of the garden unscathed. Jesus lays down his life for them and for you. Because he offered himself as a substitute, not only do they walk free, but you can live in freedom, freedom from sin and death today because he gave himself up as a substitute for you. So there's hope. Even though we're all born into the guilt of Adam, there is a second Adam, and in him all live so are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you living dependent on yourself, hoping there's something you can do, some religious zeal you can stir up on your own, some work, some prayer, some deed to atone for yourself, or do you look at yourself and despair as you should and turn and look at Christ and glory in all that he is. Let that thought be on your mind in the, the everyday realities of life. When you're battling unbelief, when you're dealing with sin's temptation, let that thought go through your mind. Jesus is a great savior. He offered himself for me. He suffered in my place. He did it willingly. He did it innocently. He stood there alone and he finished it all and the work is done, and I trust him, and in him I live. It's just a comfort that the way Jesus did this work, the point of this is not, all right, so now go try to copy Jesus. The point is just, okay, so now trust Jesus. Rest in Jesus. Rely on Jesus. Hope in Jesus in everyday life because he is now the head of a new humanity, sanctified and redeemed for the glory of the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the salvation you have provided, the Savior you gave because you so loved the world. What a gift you have given. What a salvation you have provided. What a savior. And we love to worship Jesus. We love to love Jesus. We love to trust in Jesus. And we know that no matter how many times we hear this message, we need to hear it again. Because in our flesh, we turn back to trusting in ourselves. And we need to be reminded again and again to look away from ourselves and to look at Jesus. So that's what we do this morning. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be glorified in our thoughts about you, our, our love for you, our trust in you, and produce in us new fruit. Since we are your sons and daughters, 
that we belong to a new and redeemed humanity. Be glorified in us. Let your likeness be produced in us as your spirit sanctifies us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.